I'd like to bring you something from God's word here this evening. Would you please open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings chapter 7. And I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the privilege of standing before this blessed congregation uh, that Lord is so well taught, that has such wonderful godly leadership. I I pray, Lord, for a blessing on Pastor Jeff and his family and all the ministries of this church. But Lord, here we are this evening. We've worshipped you in spirit and in truth. Now we ask that you would speak to us as we give attention to your word. I pray that you would bless the words that I say. But Lord, I also pray that you would put an anointing upon everybody tonight who receives your word in faith and that they would hear what your Holy Spirit would say to them. Do it here in our midst, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as I said, we're going to start reading tonight from 2 Kings chapter 7. But if you notice, that's kind of in the middle of your Bible. And I always feel a little bit self-conscious when I kind of ask people to parachute down just in the middle of their Bible. Because, you know, the Bible is a story that starts in the book of Genesis and goes all the way to the book of Revelation. And there is a unified understandable story that goes from beginning to end in the Bible, and we're just kind of dropping down in the middle of this story. So so let me kind of set context in a big way, because I, I don't know how many of you have walked with the Lord for a short amount of time or a longer period of time. I don't have any doubt that a congregation that's had such good teaching for as many decades as Calvary Chapel South Bay, we've got some real Bible scholars here, but I hope that there's some young believers here. I hope that there's some people, you're just, you're just fine. You, you had to look up in the table of contents where 2 Kings was. Praise the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. You're welcome here if you're just beginning to learn what the Bible's all about. Well, when God wanted to start affecting his plan for the redemption of his people, he chose a man. And that man's name was Abraham. And God made a covenant with Abraham. The covenant that God made with Abraham promised Abraham a land. That's the land today that we call the land of Israel. He, called him a, he promised him a nation. That's the people of Israel that came forth from Abraham. And he promised him a blessing. And the blessing ended up being the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was a descendant of Abraham. A land, a nation, and blessing. That covenant passed to Abraham's son, Isaac. And then that covenant passed from Isaac to Isaac's son, Jacob. Jacob had his name changed by God to Israel. And Israel passed that covenant to all 12 of his sons. And these became the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel at the end of the book of Genesis go into the land of Egypt because of a famine. And they go into the land of Egypt as a big family. They come out of the land of Egypt 400 years later. Most all of those years were years of terrible slavery. 400 years later, they came out of the land of Egypt as a people that God had called to come out of Egypt and to go to the promised land. And so under God's uh, divinely appointed leadership of the man Moses, they come out of Egypt. They're led across the wilderness. Under the leadership of a man named Joshua, they go into the promised land. And when they come into the promised land, eventually God gives them a king. Well, the first king of Israel was a man named Saul, and he wasn't a very good king. 
But then after Saul came, the man who was in many ways the greatest king of Israel, David, the son of Jesse. And then after David, the son of Jesse, came David's son, a man named Solomon. Solomon had a glorious reign filled with prosperity, peace, the building of the temple, and all of it. But after Solomon, some of the poor choices Solomon made found a greater uh, fertile soil to grow in in Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was a foolish man. He was a wicked man. And God allowed there to be a separation among the 12 tribes of Israel in the days of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. There was a civil war and the 12 tribes were no longer one nation. They divided into two nations. The two nations were the southern kingdom of Judah, which made up two tribes, and then the northern kingdom of Israel that made up 10 tribes. The capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel was a city called Samaria. The capital city of the southern kingdom of Judah was a city called Jerusalem that you're very well familiar with. Now, in the southern kingdom of Judah, they had a combination of good kings and bad kings. There'd be a good king, then there'd be a bad king, there'd be a couple good kings and a couple bad kings. Does anybody know how many good kings they had in the northern kingdom of Israel? Zero. None. They had one man who was almost good, but he didn't quite make it. And because of that, God had to continually get the attention of the northern kingdom of Israel. And one of the ways that he got their attention occurs in 2 Kings chapter 6, when the Syrians come and invade Israel. And they surround the city of Samaria in a siege. You know, in those ancient days, cities defended themselves with walls all around. Walls that could prevent an enemy army from just coming in and taking over the city. So, when the walls stood strong, what an invading army would do is circle around the city and wait them out. There were sieges in the ancient world that lasted five years, ten years. Now, those were unusual. Usually it might take six months or a year, but it was all a matter of how much food was in the city and how long could they make it last with the siege army all around. In 2 Kings chapter 6, the city of Samaria is under siege. The army of the Syrians has surrounded it. And do you want to know how bad the siege got? The siege in 2 Kings chapter 6 got so bad that the people of Samaria began to starve. It got so bad that a donkey's head was sold for more than 16 months worth of wages. Now, I don't know what you make in 16 months. That's almost a year and a half of salary. Can you imagine that much money? That's what you would need to buy a donkey's head. And I don't know what you'd make with it. Some good donkey's head soup or something. It got so bad that in the city of Samaria, a cup of dove poop, dove droppings, sold for one month's wages. And I don't even know what you'd do with it if you bought it. 
My wife and I, we like to watch cooking shows from time to time. I've never seen them do like a dove poop reduction or something like that on one of those cooking shows. But that shows you the kind of starvation that there was. Now, we look at those examples, the donkey head, the dove's poop. We go, oh, well, that's, that's all. it puts a little smile on our face. Well, it's extreme, but it's a... Listen, this next one I'm going to tell you, there's nothing funny about it. It got so bad, 2 Kings chapter 6 tells us that in the city of Samaria, mothers started eating their own children. Can you sense the despair, the hopelessness over the entire city? Here's their solution. Here's their options, I should say. Stay in the city and starve to death. Go out of the city and be killed by the Syrian army. There's your choices. And it got so bad that the wicked king Jehoram, he blamed the prophet Elisha and he demanded that the prophet fix the problem. And I don't know about you, but me as a pastor over many years, I've had this many times. There's been a problem that's been many years in the making and somebody will come to the pastor, okay, pastor, now fix it. That's basically what he did to Elisha. He says, Elisha, fix the problem. That's where we come now to 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 1. Elisha is speaking to King Jehoram of the kingdom of Israel regarding this siege. Ready? Verse 1. Then Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. That, brothers and sisters, is an astounding statement. Now, I'm going to talk about the prices there in just a moment. But forget about the prices. You know what I think is the most astounding thing there in verse 1? The most astounding thing in verse 1 is just this phrase, Hear the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord. Do you understand what kind of man Jehoram was? Jehoram was a wicked king. He had no place for the covenant God of Israel. He and his ancestors and his descendants after him would be men who would reject God and rebel against them. Yet, when he called for the prophet to speak, God didn't say, forget about you, Jehoram. I've got nothing to say to you. I'm so impressed with the gracious mercy of God that even to people who deserve silence from God, if they'll just ask, God will give them a word. Isn't that beautiful? This man, Jehoram, didn't deserve anything from God. But in his mercy, God said, Jehoram, I'm going to speak to you. And I'm going to deliver my people. Let me show you how great the deliverance will be. Verse 1, tomorrow about this time. In other words, in 24 hours, the economic situation in the city of Samaria would completely turn around. What's going to be the difference here? Well, look at what he says here. Tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Now, I've done a little bit of research. You know, what were those prices like? And from the research I've been able to do, they say that those prices are slightly higher than market prices in good times. But compared to 16 months of wages for a donkey's head, This is unbelievable crash in the market. There's going to be so much food 
that you could buy a bushel, a saya of flour for just a shekel. Isn't that remarkable? And Elijah was bold enough to give a time limit to the prophecy. In 24 hours, this is going to happen. In 24 hours, the city of Samaria is going to be swimming in food. And there's going to be a great big marketplace at the gate of the city. And flour from wheat and flour from barley will be sold this cheaply. Now, that's a remarkable promise of God's rescue. A remarkable promise of God's salvation. Look here what the response of a man next to the king was right here at verse 2. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make a window in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, in fact, this is Elisha's response, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes but you shall not eat of it. So there was a man next to King Jehoram, some captain in his administration, some man who was high up in the king's court. He's described as the man on whom the king leaned. He was such a close advisor to the king, and this man couldn't believe it. He was skeptical. He scoffed. Elisha, even if God opened up windows in heaven, could such a thing be? I don't think that it could happen this way. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, don't be like this officer next to the king. This man doubted God and rejected the hope that God wanted to bring. And he did it for several reasons. First of all, he rejected the power of God. I said, listen, look at his phrasing there in verse 2. If the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? You know, even if God were to make windows in heaven, it couldn't be this way. God can't fix this problem. I'm here to tell you that the power of God is so mighty over every problem in our life that we should never doubt his power. But this man did. Secondly, I want you to notice something. He doubted the creativity of God. What do I mean by that? Well, notice how he thought that the help had to come by a window opening up in heaven and the grain coming down. Now, why did it have to be a window in heaven and it coming down? Because there was a siege army all around the city. You couldn't bring it in horizontally. You had to bring it in vertically. That's the only way. It had to be an airlift of grain down into the city. And the only way he could conceive of heaven was God opening a window in heaven. He said, God can't do that, so it can't. Listen. Are you like me? And when I've got a difficulty before God, I tell God how he has to fix it. I'm pretty good at that. I lay out the whole plan for God. And you know what? There's many times when he doesn't even listen to me. I mean, I've got a lot of good guidance for the Lord if he would just give me a chance. But how often it's the case. I think, okay, Lord, I know the specific way that you're going to solve this problem. And God says, David, I've got ways, I've got resources that you know nothing about. You think, for example, it would have to be by opening a window in heaven, driving down. You know, you don't even know what I can do. But this officer next to King Jehoram, he doubted the creativity of God. But then thirdly, and this might be the biggest thing, he doubted and rejected the messenger of God. 
Now look, I, I got to admit, this was a big promise. You go to a city that's starving to death and you say, in 24 hours, you're going to be swimming in food. I, I honestly don't doubt somebody for doubting that promise. But then again, that officer in the king's court, he should have remembered who it was making that promise. Brothers and sisters, this was Elisha, the prophet of God. This was a man who had a track record of being a reliable and faithful messenger of God's word. This was a man of integrity, a man of honesty, and he should have said something to this effect. Listen, I know that that's a big promise. Maybe even it's a crazy promise, but I also know the man who makes that promise. And listen, we should be able to trust the promises of God, even though sometimes they seem unbelievable because they are given to us from God himself in his word. It's not the promise so much that we should find our trust in the fact that God makes the promise to us. The promise doesn't have to be reasonable in our sight before we begin to trust it. But you know, all in all, this officer is an excellent, bad example of the way that hopelessness works. Hopelessness dares to question the truthfulness of God's promise. Hopelessness dares to say, this is a new thing, it can't be true. Hopelessness dares to say, this is a sudden thing and it can't be true. Hopelessness dares to say, there's no way that God could even do this. And hopelessness says, even if God were to do something, it wouldn't be enough. Now, look at what Elisha said in response to what this king's official said. It's at the end of verse 2. Look at the end of verse 2. What did he say? He said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Do you get that picture there? Hey, listen, it's going to happen. Mr. Doubting King's official, God's going to still do his work, and you're going to see God do his work, but you will never eat of it, which is kind of a mysterious promise. Let's see if it proved true. Now, beginning with verse 3, we go to a different scene altogether. And before we start at verse 3, I'm going to tell you something that I often tell our congregation back in Santa Barbara. That when you read the Bible, it should be like a movie in your head. These things really happened. So when I was reading that, did you picture Elisha? Did you picture King Jehoram? Did you picture the, uh, the uh, captain or the official in the king's court? Now, I want you to picture the scene that's presented to us by verse 3. Ready for this? Now, there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine in the city... We shall die there. The famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now, therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. I love these four lepers. Without explaining anything else, the shift in the biblical account goes from King Jehoram's court to outside the city walls of Samaria where we meet with four leprous men. And let me tell you something. These men had big problems. Do you know what the problem was? They were lepers. Now, what they called leprosy in the ancient world 
was a specific kind of skin disease that begins like little red spots on the skin. It doesn't stay that way. If it was just little red spots on the skin, then I would say in my teenage years, I was filled with leprosy. But, but it goes from little red spots on the skin where the spots get bigger, they start to turn white, but they have a shiny or scaly appearance. And pretty soon, those spots spread all over your body. And then you know what happens? Your hair begins to fall out. First from your head, then even from your eyebrows and the rest of your body. As things get worse when you're a leper, your fingernails and your toenails each start to loosen and fall off. And then after that, the joints of your fingers and toes begin to rot and your fingers and toes fall off piece by piece. Your gums begin to shrink. They don't have the strength to hold your teeth and your teeth begin to fall out one by one. As the leprosy progresses, it keeps eating away at your face until your nose, your palate, and even your eyes rot away and eventually you die. Pretty terrible disease. You know, the Bible talks a lot about leprosy. And you think, why why pick that disease to talk a lot about? There's a lot of diseases that afflict people and Leprosy is relatively rare. Why does the Bible give so much attention to leprosy? I'll tell you why. Because God uses leprosy as an illustration of sin. It's what sin does to men and women. It starts out small. It slowly grows. It spreads all over. It begins to rot away. And it makes you something like the living dead. I know that a few years ago, zombie things were all the rage in the culture. Let me tell you, the ancient version of a zombie was a leper. They were the walking dead, and they were a powerful illustration of how we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Even though we can still breathe, even though we can still walk around, we are the walking dead when we are bound in our sin. It's as if God wanted every leper to be a warning to everybody else about the effects of sin. So these men had the problem of leprosy, Do you know they had another problem as well? What was their other problem? Uh, Starving to death? They had two problems. And before I go any further, I want to say that in these particular lepers, I see such a powerful illustration of humanity separated from God. Separated from God, we have two huge problems. The first problem is our sin. And our sin will make us the walking dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. It's like we're leprous people who need the touch of Jesus Christ, who had a beautiful way of touching lepers. Yes, that's us. Lord, we identify with the leprous person in our sin. But I want you to know, that's not our only problem. You know what our other problem is? We've got a hunger in our very being that this world cannot satisfy. 
We've got a hunger in the innermost man, in the innermost woman that says, I long for something eternal. I long for something from God himself. I long for something that's beyond this world. It's as if God has placed a hole inside every human heart that only he can adequately fill. And we try to fill that hunger with everything else. Every addiction that we suffer under is a vain attempt to fill that. Every um, sequential love relationship that we foolishly hurl ourselves into and give ourselves away to unwisely, it's an attempt to fill that hole. Every drive after success where we forget our moorings and our our morals. It's trying to fill that thing inside. Brothers and sisters, God has put a hunger inside every man and woman. And as far as this world goes, it's famine everywhere. Only Jesus Christ can fill that void. Only the one who is the bread of life can come and satisfy that hunger for us. But apart from God, we are lepers and We are starving to death. Now these lepers were pretty smart. Did you see what they said there in verse 3? Why are we sitting here until we die? Here we are outside the gate of Samaria. They're not going to let us in. Do you think they would like to have a couple of lepers to take whatever little food there was in the city? Get out of here. You guys are not welcome in the city of Samaria. So there's no point in trying to sneak in. Um, What are we going to do? Well, if we just stay here, we die. If we go into the city of Samaria, we'll die. If we just sit here and do nothing, we will die. The, The best we can do is let's surrender ourselves to the Syrian army. And maybe it's a small chance, but maybe they'll show favor to us. I got to agree. This is a pretty small chance. Can you imagine these four lepers walking up to the gate of the uh, Syrian army? Hi, uh, we're four lepers. You guys just want to let us in your camp and give us some food? How likely was that to be given a warm reception? But they said, we know the other two options will absolutely get us dead. This one only has a 98% chance of getting us dead. Let's go for that option. And so they said they would. They went to the Syrian camp. And that's where we pick it up in verse 5. And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. Now, can you picture that? Four lepers walking up to the outskirts of the Syrian camp. They come to the gate. Hello? We're the four lepers. Anybody there? And what would you, it's a trap. Gatekeeper's out to lunch. He's going to come around the corner in a minute, stab us through with his sword. We're done for. This is a trap. You're super cautious. You, you poke your head in. Is anybody here? What's going on? But the problem is no one was there. Look at how the text describes it there beginning at verse 6. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact. 
their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. Before the lepers came to the camp, God sent a noise. How did God send the noise? I have no idea. Maybe he sent a couple angels with loudspeakers right over the camp. Maybe God just created the sound inside everybody's head. I don't know how they did it. But when they in the Syrian camp heard this noise of great armies coming towards them, horses, battle, troops marching, they suddenly panicked with this irrational panic that no doubt God had set upon them. This irrational panic said, We're going to be conquered. The king of Israel has hired the two biggest kingdoms around us, the Hittites and the Egyptians, and they've come with all their armies. Run for your life. And so they picked up themselves, left everything behind, and they ran for their lives towards the Jordan River, leaving everything behind in the Syrian camp. That's where the lepers walk up and say, Hello? Anybody here? They walk up to a tent and look what happens. Verse 8. This is wonderful. Verse 8. And when the lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also and went and hid it. Isn't this the best ever? They're poking around the camp. They look into a tent. Nobody's here. They got to be hiding somewhere. They're going to kill us for sure. But who cares? Do you see all the food on that table? I'm starving. They go in there and without any regard to the stomach aches that they'll have by stuffing themselves after starving for how many weeks, they go in and they eat and they drink. And then, did you see that suit of clothes over there? I want that. Did you see that pile of gold over there? That's mine. They eat, they gather up as much gold, as much clothing. They run out of the camp and they hide it because they think these guys are coming back in any minute. They go back into the camp again. They go into another tent, eat and drink, get more clothes, more gold. They run out and hide that. And then they come back again. These lepers were being provided for in a way beyond their wildest imagination. But then look at what happens in verse 9. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. God has blessed us so much. He's saved us from the famine that was upon us. We've been rescued, but nobody else knows. The battle is over. The victory is won. But there's a starving city over there that has no idea that the battle's over. What a powerful picture is that. Brothers and sisters, do you see something very powerful in the guilt of these lepers? They said, it's not right for us to receive Everything that God has provided for us in a battle that we didn't fight, he just invites us to come and share the spoil. The victory is ours, but nobody knows it. I'll tell you something. If nobody would have ever told the people in the city of Samaria 
more people would have died. More lives would be lost. More people would have plunged into despair. But there were some lepers who said, we have received of this plunder from a battle that we didn't fight. We're going to go and tell other people about it because they can share in the victory as well. Now, can you help me make a parallel to the Christian life? Do we as believers benefit, gain something from a victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil that we didn't fight, but Jesus accomplished for us, but yet we are in the midst of a world that knows nothing about what Jesus Christ did for them, and how are they going to hear from it except it's from us? Do you realize that we're the lepers? We're the ones who have received so much. We're the ones who have been saved from certain death. We're the ones who have walked into a provision that we did nothing to provide for ourselves, but God gives us richly. That's us. And God says, here it is, open wide. Now, you've received, go tell somebody about it. But let me remind you this. Do some feasting before you go tell them. There is nothing wrong with those lepers eating twice before they went out and told people. No, enjoy the feast yourself. Listen, the world doesn't need a starving to death person saying, oh, there's great provision in Jesus Christ. They need somebody who's filled with the love and the joy and the abundant life that Jesus said that he was give us. When we are filled and satisfied from our own soul hunger, then we can go to other people and say the provision is there in Jesus Christ. That's our privilege. So what did the lepers do? I love how the story continues. Look here at verse 10. So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them saying, we went to the Syrian camp and surprisingly no one was there. Not a human sound. Only horses and donkeys tied and the tents intact. I love this. It's so practical. We, we sometimes think that the job of sharing the message with a needy world is so overwhelming, why even start? I can imagine all the excuses that these lepers might have made. We can't talk to the king. We can't talk to the prophet Elisha. Who will listen to us? Listen, there was one people or maybe a small group of people that the lepers did have contact with, the gatekeepers of the city. You know why? Because the gatekeepers of the city were the ones always telling them, get lost, you lepers, don't come in here. At least they knew those guys. They probably knew them personally. The, the gatekeeper sees these four lepers come. And by the way, if I ever make a movie of this, I know exactly what I'm going to do with these four lepers. These lepers are going to be walking towards the city, first of all, with full stomachs and like burping. They'll have a turkey leg in one hand and a, and a, a, a roast beef under the other. And, and they'll be dressed in all these crazy costumes that they picked up from the, uh, from the tents. And, and one guy will have a little, you know, uh, soldier's helmet on his head. And they'll be shuffling towards the gate. And these guys with food coming everywhere, munching on a turkey leg, will shout up to the gatekeeper, Hey, camp's empty. Nobody else in the city will listen to us, but you will. We know you. Can I tell you? I, I tonight, I personally absolve you of the responsibility of having to save the world. You don't have to save the world. 
There's one savior of the world and his name is Jesus Christ. All you got to do is get the message out to the people that you do have contact with. These lepers could never talk to the king, but they could talk to the gatekeepers. Don't worry about the people you can't talk to. God's put enough people in your life that you can talk to. Just talk to them and see what God will do with that. So these four lepers come up to the gate of the city. They say to the gatekeeper, hey, camp's empty. It's there for the taking. And what did the gatekeeper do? Verse 11, and the gatekeepers called out and they told it to the king's household. Verse 12, so the king arose in the night and said to his servants, God has fulfilled his promise just as the prophet Elisha said, let's go receive his provision. Is that what the king said? No, I made that up in verse 12, didn't I? Look at what the king actually said. So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they've gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get them into the city and get into the city. And one of his servants answered and said, please, let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, they may either become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed, I say, they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. Therefore, they took the two chariots with horses, and the king sent them into the direction of the Syrian army, saying, go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan. And indeed, all the road was full of garments and weapons, which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king and the message that the victory was won. The siege is over. There's plenty of food in the Syrian army camp. It went throughout the entire city, and it was true, just as the prophet Elisha had said, that there was so much grain that a cup of, uh, a seah of wheat sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel. It was exactly as the word of the Lord proved true. Now, what about that army captain? Well, you know what happened to him? The king Jehoram said, hey, it's opened up. Let the people out of the city that go in the Syrian army camp. I I want you to supervise the gate. That officer went down to the city gate and there supervising, he was trampled by the crowd that went out of the city gate to go into the Syrian army to take the food that was there. It was like worse than any Black Friday crowd you've ever seen in your life. They trampled him. And it was true. He saw the provision. He knew that it was true. But his unbelief, his rejection of God's hope meant that he would never enjoy it. I've got good news to to, uh, announce to you that Jesus Christ has won the victory. It's like the world, the flesh, and the devil have set a siege around your soul and they want to keep you hungry and starving and dissatisfied into this world and the next. But Jesus Christ conquered over it all and he won the battle. He invites you to now come and share in the spoil. He is the bread from heaven. Matter of fact, you could say God opened up a window in heaven and dropped him down. He's the bread from heaven that comes to satisfy us. And now God says, I want you to feast upon who Jesus is and the abundant life that he gives. And then once you've done that, 
why don't you go find some other starving person and tell them about the battle that Jesus won and the spoil that we share in. Now, whatever happened to these four lepers? There's a rabbinic source that says that these four lepers took all the uh, silver and gold and garments, that they had a good investment stake from that. They, they found one other guy to join them in a partnership, and they opened up a burger chain named Five Guys. <laughs> I, I made that part up. That's not really in the rabbi's literature at all. That's, forget about that one. Now, God had a way to satisfy their hunger. But the thing that we find out later from the ministry of Jesus was that Jesus also knew how to heal the leper. We can come to Jesus and say, Jesus, yeah, I have sin that you need to deal with. But our problem isn't only sin. We also need to have that hole, that emptiness, that need, that void in our heart filled. And Jesus Christ is here to do it. I I don't know how tonight's message has spoken to you. Maybe you see too much of yourself in that uh, captain that stood next to the king. And you're the one, you're always figuring out how it's hopeless. That's just how you gravitate. You, You need tonight for God to restore and to renew your hope. Maybe you've been tonight made aware of the hunger you have in your life that needs to be satisfied. Maybe, maybe you see some leprous spots on you, metaphorically speaking, that Jesus needs to deal with. The word of the Lord is present. I'm going to pray. The worship team's going to come up front. And there's also going to be pastors and prayer people all along the front here. While the worship team is playing, if you'd like to come up and receive some special prayer this evening, if God's moved upon your heart and if he's spoken to you, I can guarantee you, if you think you should come up here and pray with somebody who's up front here ready to pray for you, it is not the devil telling you to come up and pray here. It's the Lord. And if the Lord is telling you to do it, then you should do it. So Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the miracle of the battle that we gained the spoil from, but we never even fought the battle. Thank you, Lord, that you have a way of dealing with our sin and our emptiness. And Jesus, we just come before you as people who are all too similar to these lepers. We say, Jesus, would you please work in our life? We love you. We thank you. And Lord, I I want to pray a special prayer tonight for anyone here who's given up hope. Lord, maybe they've never said those words themselves, but they know right now that this is them. Lord, would you show them that you are a God who specializes in giving hope even in hopeless situations. Do it, Lord. Do it by the work of your wonderful son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.